We don't learn that there are people of many nationalities in the Nuremberg story. We do not learn that there were many, many women in the Nuremberg project. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments, false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Hi, this is Asymmetrical Haircuts and I'm Stephanie van den Berg. And I'm Janet Anderson. In October, we had the anniversary of the Nuremberg Military Tribunal, which finished on October the 1st, 1946, where 22 top political and military leaders of the Third Reich were put on trial. And there were stories of Hitler's war, which were aired in the world media for the best part of a year. And it set out the kind of public narrative of Nazi crimes. Nuremberg is still a term that gets invoked today. It seems to set the terms for our current understanding of international criminal justice, and it also gets abused these days by some conspiracy theorists and anti-vaxxers who like to bandy around the Nuremberg Code. So we thought that we'd explore some of the meanings and the myths and the realities of Nuremberg with two guests. First up, we have Francine Hirsch, the Vilas Distinguished Achievement Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and her recent book, Soviet Judgment at Nuremberg, A New History of the International Military Tribunal After World War II, came out recently. Hi, Francine. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me today. And our another guest is a return guest, and I should by now know how to pronounce her name. It's Diane Marie Amen. She is University of Georgia Regents Professor of International Law. Uh, she is the Emily and Ernest Woodruff Chair in International Law, the Faculty Co-Director of the Dean Rusk International Law Center, and she also wrote about women at Nuremberg. Hi, Diane. Hello, it's so good to see you again, Stephanie and Janet. So, Diane, let's kick off. When we think about this, I mean, we are kind of a bit outsiders to Nuremberg ourselves. So we think of this big trial and there's big chief US prosecutor, Robert H. Jackson, you know, this American hero. And um, maybe in our minds, we've got this um, film that happened, uh, Judgment at Nuremberg, which was all about having a fair trial for Nazi ringleaders. I mean, is that conventional view, the right view of Nuremberg? It's certainly one view, but I think it is um, distorted in that it really tells a story of heroes and villains, all of whom are male, all of whom are white and of European history, all of whom speak either English or German, and their language defines whether they're the hero or the villain. We don't learn that there are people of many nationalities in the Nuremberg story. We do not learn that uh, there were many, many women in the Nuremberg Project. The only reference that we see in the conventional narrative to women is as a victim or as a romantic interest. And the 1961 film uh, portrays that starkly because we see Marlena Dietrich as the, the, the love interest of the American male hero, and we see Judy Garland playing uh, the victim who testifies in a very moving, heart-wrenching way about the way she was persecuted by the Nazis. Fran, what do you think? Is uh, Would you like to uh, add in on your view of the conventional view? 
Yeah, well, I think that's what's really interesting is um, also is that we that that film Judgment at Nuremberg, the, the Spencer Tracy Marlene Dietrich one. What's so interesting about that film is it's a film of the judges' trial, which was one of the latter Nuremberg trials. And we tend to remember Nuremberg as often as an American-led event, in part because of the subsequent tr Nuremberg trials were carried out by the Americans. Whereas the first of the Nuremberg trials, the one that took place from November 1945 to October 1946, it was it was a four power venture. I mean, more in the sense that other countries, other allied countries were involved, too. But it involved um, four countries of the prosecution. It involved um, so four prosecution teams. It involved four teams of judges. And so we in, in Judgment at Nuremberg, we get the, the judges trial. But even in some of the other stories of the Nuremberg trials, um, including this amazing docudrama Nuremberg that stars Alec Baldwin as Robert H. Jackson, we it, it's a, it's again even even when the popular when the popular renditions focus on the first Nuremberg trial, they still tend to emphasize the role of the Americans. And I agree with Diane completely about this, that one of the really interesting things, too, in, in that film that was really striking to me as someone who studies the Soviet Union, is that the Americans are portrayed as the leaders. The French and the British in that film, they have kind of supportive roles, but, you know, not leading roles, but supportive roles. And the Soviets, anytime they enter a scene, um, it's really as they're they're kind of shady, right? They can't be trusted. They're sort of up to something. And in some instances in that film, even they come off as worse as as the Nazi defendants. So so again, to to me, that's um, yeah, it's that that the myth that that remains um, even to this day, I think, is really striking. So Fran, you wrote a book about this specifically about the, the Soviet role in the Nuremberg trial. And how was it for you to retell the history of this event that everybody knows about and is so well known and kind of has this mythical status and you tell it from a very different angle and you also kind of how does bringing in the Soviets kind of change the history of it for you? Yeah, well, for me, it was it was incredibly exciting um, doing that research and starting to put together the pieces of the story, in part because I had started like everyone else with reading those like tell for tellers, like wonderful memoir and these other books where the Soviets, they come up in these books. It's not that they're not discussed, but but we don't know very much. There's always guessing about their motivations, like why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? And it's not told at all from a perspective of trying to understand really where they are coming from. And for for me, one of the really nice things about being able to retell the story was not just to tell the story of the Soviet Union, but to, to see how that changes the story of the Nuremberg trials as a whole. And to see when you have these examples, like there's one wonderful example in Telford Taylor's memoir, where the Soviets are stalling and stalling and stalling to delay the start of the trial. And they even say that, you know, that Rudenko has malaria. And there's all these questions like, what are they doing? Like, why are they doing this? And we now know from the Soviet documents that they were doing this because they were incredibly behind. They didn't have enough translators. They were, they they were struggling really just to get it together. They, they desperately needed more time. Um, similar things too in, in, in um, Telfer Taylor's memoir at the end when they're talking about the verdicts and the Soviet judge Nikachenko, he dissented from the other judges. And and Taylor goes on about how um, you know they, they really liked the, the judges got along right because we we know from from memoirs and letters that they played tennis together. They 
Um, they went to pool parties together. They had like a social life. And so the Western judges, they they felt bad for Nikachenko because they thought like, oh, you know, poor Nikachenko, he has to go against um, go against us, and he's you know. But but we know from the Soviet documents that that Nikachenko, he knew why he was at Nuremberg. He was and he was fine with obeying Stalin's orders. That that was his job. And so one of the things I get about bringing in the Soviet material and reading it against these other documents is being able to, to, to just get a, a fresh look at, um, at what Nuremberg was. And, um, and I think that really, it, it, cha- it changes the story in really significant ways. This is really making me wonder all kinds of questions about the narrative that we have as to whether there was some kind of deliberate decision at some point to 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 have the narrative one way i mean it was i mean it was a propaganda project from various sides wasn't it diane why don't you start and then uh maybe fran has another perspective that she wants to to add in there certainly were a lot of objectives in the nuremberg project and uh putting forth promoting an image of Western, Occidental, uh, Anglo-American justice was one of them. And you see that because of the way that the courtroom is reconstructed. They renovated the courtroom for the purpose and they built a, a projection booth. And so every minute gavel to gavel of a 12 month trial is captured on film and sometimes also on audio the entire back gallery is filled with press corps from around the world. In fact, uh, the British, and I'm sure the Americans as well, but the British Council brought in journalists from outside the normal beats to come for the better part of a week and cover Nuremberg and go back to one of them. These are where some of the women come in. One of them is Victoria Ocampo, a distant relative of the first prosecutor of the ICC, who goes back to Argentina and writes in her Latin American periodical about her visit to Nuremberg. Another is Elsa Triolet. Um, She comes on her own, but she too writes in the French periodical. Probably the most notable person whom the British brought in was Laura Knight, who at that point was about 80 years old. She was already a dame of the empire, and she comes for the better part of a month, sits in that projection booth in wrapped in a blanket because it was so cold in the courtroom, sketching. And she ends up painting an oil painting of Nuremberg in rapid fashion. I think it's released in May of 46. Um, showing the trial, uh, and in the background, her backdrop is the horrors of war. And so, you know, the, the message was strong. This justice is the way to stop war. It's the way to regulate war. And that definitely was something that they were trying to project. That's so great, uh, to the, that image of the, the painting, Diane. Um, I think that f- from the Soviet side, one of the really interesting things is that the Soviets from the start were imagining Nuremberg as a show trial in the sense that they believed that the prosecution would control the script. They believed that the press would control the narrative. 
and they believe that it would be open and shut. They did not anticipate the dependents having a robust defense. They did not anticipate the role that defense attorneys and defense witnesses ended up playing. And, and again, and we see this in part in how the Soviets put together their team. The, the chief, Soviet chief prosecutor, Roman Rudenko, and the Soviet main judge, Yona Nikachenko, they had kind of earned their political stripes um, in the Moscow show trials of 1936 to 1939. And the, the Soviets, they brought them there because Nuremberg was going to, it wasn't going to be a show trial in the sense of a Soviet show trial where defend where the, the those who were on trial were not necessarily guilty of their crimes but it was going to be a show trial for the soviets in the sense of using this as an opportunity to tell a story an example of didactic justice to to show to the world that the nazi leaders and their organizations that they were all guilty to show also as part of that process that the, the soviets were heroes of of the war were heroes in this process and and they thought that it would be very simple. And because of this, they weren't very worried about um, their own war crimes coming out in the courtroom because they thought that that's not what Nuremberg was about. In fact, the Nuremberg Charter had circumscribed the trials to the crimes of the European Axis powers. And so they also they imagined that it was going to be relatively short and relatively straightforward. And part of what happens, and I think that initially, to be fair to the, the Soviets in terms of how they're envisioning things, I think initially that this is pretty much what everyone is seems to be on board with when they're first talking about the idea of a trial. The Soviets are pushing for a trial early on. The Americans come on board um, and then start to take over and start to reframe things. And then with... Um, after FDR dies, once Truman is in and then Jackson is in, Jackson has an idea of what the trial should be in terms of an example of, of rule of law. And, and then part of what happens during the trials is it's not just a contest then between the prosecution and the defense, but it's also a contest among the countries of the prosecution about how the trial is going to go and what it's going to look like. And that plays out in the courtroom and it also plays out in the, in the press as well. Now, Diane, you briefly mentioned uh, some of the women that were at the Nuremberg uh, Tribunal in, in your response to this question. Were there, and that was mostly from the kind of journalists and observers side, were there more significant women that we don't know about? And what exactly did they do in this trial? What was their role? Yes, in fact, uh, my research to date has identified perhaps 200 women who were professionals at the trials. Now, by that, I mean the first military uh, tribunal trial, as well as the 12 subsequent proceedings. At the IMT trial, and that's what I'm working, focusing on in the book that I'm writing, uh, there were many, many women who were not only journalists, but also uh, analysts, translators, interpreters, administrative uh, professionals, and indeed, there were three women who were lawyers. And in some ways, they become a core of the six women that I'm looking at. Another one that I'm looking at is a British intelligence officer. As far as I can tell, there were no women lawyers who were British, but there were four women who belonged to the Women's Royal Naval Service, known as the Wrens, who had been intelligence officers intercepting U-boat signals during World War II they decamped to Nuremberg to uh, help construct 
the British case against the German Navy admirals and do so quite successfully. The lawyers, uh, two of them were Americans who had worked at the State Department during World War II. I should also note that all of these women played an active role in World War II, and that's something else that we don't get in the traditional narrative. Everyone was a veteran who was a participant at Nuremberg, whether they had been active service in uniform, like Betty Richardson, the Wren, um, like the translator Tatiana Stupnikova, who is a Russian uh, translator who becomes one of the uh, true pioneers of simultaneous interpretation. She had been a translator for the Red Army on the front during the liberation, or they were working in government as in their own governmental units. Another one is Edith Simon, who had been working for the Office of War Information of the United States throughout the war. The lawyers worked either for the State Department in the United States or for the Ministry of Justice in France. And two of them spent quite a lot of time in the courtroom throughout that year-long trial. Both of them were involved in researching, writing, preparing pleadings, preparing dossiers. What's interesting about the three lawyers, and they were named Catherine Feit, uh, Harriet Zetterberg, and then the French woman was Dr. Aline Chaloufour. All three of them were denied the title of lawyer. They were not known as legal advisor. They were not known as lawyer. They were not known as prosecutor, unlike colleagues who were male doing much the same work. And not one of them, as far as I can tell, was ever permitted to address the tribunal. They did not have what the British call the right of audience. And so you get these amazing pictures coming out of that trial of the woman who had prepared, in one case, Harriet Zetterberg had written the brief on, um, I want to say Hans Frank, uh, uh, Julia Stryker as well. She also had a hand in the Albert Speer brief of the United States. She is sitting at the table watching a male deliver the document to the court that she had done. And what I want you to do is every time you now see a Nuremberg picture and you see a man at a lectern and a woman at the table, to consider that that woman contributed in a significant professional way to the preparation of what the man is delivering in the courtroom. There's a lot of detail there in, um, in all of the um, material that obviously Diane has been going through photos, um, memoirs, etc. And she's painted lots of pictures of the women. Maybe, Fran, you can also complement that by telling us something about the the Soviet side and, and some of the members of the delegation. Were they also, you know, interesting inside the courtroom and maybe outside the courtroom as well? Right. One of the things that I wanted to do with, with writing my book was to bring in... Um, for readers to get to know a new cast of characters, these members of the Soviet delegation who we don't get in memoirs like Telford Taylor's Anatomy of the Nuremberg Trials or other kinds of books of that sort. 
And so um, what I tried to do was in, in the archival research that I did, I, I looked at letters and diaries of some of the participants in order to get a sense of who they were, what their experiences were. And, and so some of the people, I, I also try to show the trials like through the eyes of people like the Soviet filmmaker, Roman Carmen, who um, again, he also had been on the front. He had been, been filming um, a number of battles, had filmed the liberation of concentration camps. I tried to show the trials as well through the eyes of people like the Soviet political cartoonist Boris Safimov, who similarly to the story that Diane was telling, also sat in the courtroom sketching, um, and he was sketching the defendants and doing political caricatures of them that then were published in the pages of the Soviet newspapers Pravda and Izviestia. Um, I also spent a lot of time um, thinking about the witnesses because the Soviets brought a, a number of eyewitnesses, um, people who had been um, who had survived the concentration camps and who had survived other horrible experiences. And they, the whole process selecting witnesses is, is that it's really interesting of itself. And then the witnesses and their stories. And one of the witnesses who I spend a lot of time talking about is the Yiddish poet Avraham Sutskever, who the Soviets bring in to, um, to testify about the Holocaust. And so it, as part of the process of the book, I also tell Sutskever's story. And I think it's a story that's I mean, some Americans know that story, but I think it's a really important story for understanding the course of the trial and, and the trial's impact in terms of how people got to understand the, the experience of the war. And I also talk about people like the Soviet, not just the Soviet um, prosecutors and, and judges who were involved in the show trials, but other people like the Soviet lawyer Aaron Trainin. Um, he was from Vitebsk in the Pale of Settlement, um, and he moved to Moscow where he got his education, and he... Um, he actually spent some time studying in Berlin as well. So he has a really interesting life history. But what he brings to the trial also is not just his legal expertise. I mean, Trainin is one of the people who comes up, he comes up with this concept of crimes against peace, and that's incredibly important for understanding Nuremberg. But what he also brings with him is the knowledge that all of the Jews in, in his hometown of, of Vitebsk were murdered um, with, the, with the Nazi invasion. So I think that getting to know some of the members of the Soviet delegation in that way, it's important for the story of the trials. It's also important in terms of just getting a sense of what their experiences were in the war and, and what they bring with them to Nuremberg that would be different from what the Americans and the British um, bring with them. Their, their experiences are more similar in some ways to what the French are bringing in, in terms of having a, a country that, that's been occupied. And so this seems like you went into a lot of the, also the personal detail apart from the official record. Now, Diane, you spoke before about women in Nuremberg and that they are, uh, well, kind of absent from the official record uh, because they are not speaking and they are not doing so. How do you then do your research? What do you focus on to get these the stories of these women out? So I think that's exactly right, Stephanie. Um, it was not a choice for me to conduct the research in the way I did because the women, um, as I like to say, were the visible invisibles of the trial. You see them when you look for them in courtroom photographs, but you don't hear them except, and this is an interesting twist, that many of the simultaneous interpreters were women. So even when men were speaking in the courtroom, many of the people in the audience heard female voices mm. delivering that content. So there's an interesting irony to that. 
But as to the women who were doing the, the courtroom work, the legal advisor work, they are hard to identify from traditional methods. They don't get to stand and address the court. On occasion, their contributions are recognized, but never in a way that lets you know what they did. So you may sometimes find a footnote. I would like to thank these five people for assisting on this pleading, but one doesn't know if the person was the typist or wrote and researched the document. And so what I've had to do is work inductively and really just kind of collect names and try to find out what I could find out. And some of the best resources, um, I, I benefited from a research fellowship at the USC Shoah Foundation in Los Angeles, where for a month I listened to um, and watched videos of oral histories that were done in the 90s of Nuremberg participants. And so how do I know about Harriet Zetterberg and the and the watching someone deliver uh, something she'd written? I know it because her husband talks about it in mm. his oral history and his feelings about it and her feelings about it. And so it's through personal papers and 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 resources like that that I've been able to construct um uh, stories and then identify who matters. We've talked a lot about Taylor's memoir. It too is a resource, but not terribly accurate with regard to the people whom I'm interested in. He gives me some names, but he often does not acknowledge what their contribution was. Dr. Shalofor is described as a very able translator and administrator. He does not recognize, nor does he understand um, that this woman who he he admires for her ability to speak English, even though she's French, was the sixth woman in history of France to earn a doctorate in public international law, that she had taught, she had practiced at the Bar of Paris throughout the entire 1930s, that she had, at the time she comes to Nuremberg, published one book and perhaps a dozen articles on issues of politics, economy, and law. Um, another person that he mentions is the, I'm sure he used an adjective like comely, French secretary who uh, comes to a pool party in the first bikini that he and um, most of the male participants had ever seen. We don't know from his description of her, that she was a professional of the trial. She engaged in translations, and her name appears in translations of books from French to English in the decades after Nuremberg. And so these participants were shaped into the stereotype of the men who were uh, producing the cultural understanding. And if I can add, add something to a point that was made earlier, I think it's important to realize it wasn't just a propaganda project that created the conventional narrative. It's also the fact that the United States of America controlled cultural understanding for a good 50 years after World War II. And so is it any surprise that a Hollywood movie would focus on Americans as heroes? Is it any surprise that 
the vast majority of memoirs by participants um, are American males pr producing in English and therefore shaping it according to their experiences. When we think about literary production, cultural production in the post-war period, that shouldn't surprise us at all. Fran, you want to jump in here? Um, oh, I just wanted to add a couple of things that I, I, what Diane was talking about, which is so interesting. It kind of just like sparked a, a, a few thoughts. And um, it's just in terms of the, the gender relations at the trial, one of the really interesting memos that, that I found was a, a memo from um, so the Soviets were sending regular surveillance reports reporting on what was happening in the trials and what was happening among their delegation. And they send a report talking about how terrible it was that the Americans and the British in Nuremberg were making fun of the clothing that was being worn by the, the, the Soviet women in their delegation, by the Soviet translators and, and the Soviet um, stenographers and typists. And this memo talks about the fact that if the Soviets are going to be participating in these big international events, that they need to pay more attention to things like clothing. Um, and the other thing that we get in the secret reports coming from, from Nuremberg to Moscow is also talk about how the women are spending so much time shopping on the black market. Um, the women in the Soviet delegation, because I think, again, that they 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 realize that, um, I mean, some of it is to get stuff to procure things to bring back home. But I think there's a self-consciousness that also you know, just develops because of, of them being seen as being dressed in a dowdy way. And, and I think that's um, just, again, thinking about it's the gender politics about how these stories are told later, but also what's happening at the trials themselves. I'm wondering, Fran, now that you're talking, it sparks something in uh, uh, my knowledge because I uh, know a lot about the former uh, Yugoslavia and also the partisan movement. And there, there was a whole thing about women uh, after the war were much more integrated into the workforce and much more pushed forward as uh, workers and people who held down jobs. And I was wondering if uh, this also, if you see that it may be in the Soviet narrative about the Nuremberg trial, the women are giving given a more prominent role uh, because socialism uh, was much more uh, like that. That's such an interesting question. Um, in the Soviet narrative of the Second World War itself, at certain moments, while the war is taking place, the role of women is is held up and emphasized. There are lots of women partisans who are celebrated in the Soviet press. By the time the war is coming to an end, that narrative is already shifting. And women are are not given as prominent a role in the stories of the Second World War that are told by the by the end of the war as as it's becoming kind of a myth of the Great Patriotic War in the Soviet Union, and and the role of women is not emphasized at all in in the Soviet stories of the trials. So, um, and in fact, I mean it's very similar. The Soviets they don't have um, female prosecutors. They they have female. Um, they, there are members of the the legal team who are women who are having most of their role is in terms of translation or so they say but I but but Diane's research has sparked my interest in in wondering too I, about if there's more that's going on behind the scenes that's not talked about as much in some of the documents 
So, so no, that's not the case. We we now know um, due to the work of, of people like um, Svidlana Alexeyevich, who's done these oral histories of um, women who had fought in the Second World War. Um, it's not so much an oral history, but a kind of a, a tapestry of voices. We have more of a sense of the role that women played, but but Soviet women played an incredibly important role in the war. And um, but but no, that's that's not part of the Soviet Nuremberg story. I think I'd like to add to that, that in the West, women were beginning to become professionals. And in fact, the fact of World War II opened opportunities for women. How is it that some of these um, American women in particular had experience in government as lawyers? It was because all the men had gone to war and Washington needed lawyers to fill the roles um, in treasury and transportation and justice, et cetera. And it was that experience gained in World War II that, that enabled them then to have the qualifications to eventually become part of the trial. I think what we see is that for women um, globally, very soon after World War II, those opportunities closed down. There's an expectation that they will give up their jobs when the men come home. Um, and if they resist that expectation, um, there are other ways that they're sort of pushed out of the workforce. And, you know, I think that, too, is part of the reason why their narratives haven't been told. You know, is is it that they didn't care to write their memoirs or is it that they knew that no publisher would be interested in their memoirs? I think it, the answer is somewhere in the middle between those. Well, I would say in the Soviet case, it was considered almost shameful when women came home to talk about what they had experienced because of, of having lived on, on the front and having lived, you know, quote unquote, as men is what some of them talked about. And so it was for women who then wanted to marry and have a quote unquote normal life. It was something that was not seen as like acceptable conversation. Um, what's interesting in the Soviet Union is, as well, though, after the war, because, again, the Soviets lost 27 million people in the war and just the the number of of men who died um it, it, so it's so there's a, a big gender imbalance after the war as well so i think things probably look different in the soviet union afterwards in terms of the, the roles that women played in the workforce um differently but yet it's still in some of those high level positions in the soviet union um it was men that that occupied them nonetheless so you presenting this um, incredible multi-layered ways of uh, seeing uh, the trial, both of you, and really, at least for me, opening my eyes to, to lots of different interpretations, lots of different narratives that are there. But um, certainly conventionally, um, what we've always heard is that Nuremberg, you know, the principles around Nuremberg, it's just this basic blueprint for international courts for the future. Um, I know there are a lot of issues about which charges came up and why those charges are on, but can we still say that Nuremberg is is the blueprint that, that is now still being followed? So, so I'd like to answer it this way. I think that the research that you're hearing about from Fran and me and 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 I would add in folks like Kirsten van Lingen, Guillaume Murakali, Matthias Gemelich, um, and others who are looking at this moment of 
post-war trials at Nuremberg and indeed in Tokyo as well. Um, and unpacking or, or interrogating the traditional narrative. I think what's important about this research is it gives us a more accurate, a more nuanced, a more complicated understanding of Nuremberg. One of the things that happens in the 90s when international criminal justice is revived is that the hero story is the only story that's put forward. Some of the women who worked at Nuremberg were alive and quite vibrant at that period. And yet they are almost never called upon to speak at the conferences, very few exceptions, um, to give their views of things. One of them who does speak, Cecilia Getz, who by then is a federal judge in New York, um, she gives a pretty pessimistic account of her experience as the number two counsel at the Krupp trial. Um, would we have had a more sophisticated understanding of how difficult the international criminal justice project was going to be if we understood that the hero story was distorted, that there were blemishes, there were flaws, there were setbacks, there were injustices. I think knowing about that might have constructed a better international criminal justice, might have made expectations more realistic than they would otherwise be. I think it's also true, and I'm going to hand off to Fran now, that we should have, we would have done better had we known about the tensions among the delegations, right? That that there were Soviets, there were French, there were British, there were Americans, there were a lot of subsidiary delegations, Czech, you mentioned Yugoslavia, and they weren't always on the same page. And I think that competition, that rivalry, that disagreement, had we known about that, we might have done better from the 90s onward with our project. So I think that one of the things, um, the Cold War, right, looms large over so much of what we've understood about Nuremberg and the end of the Cold War has, is I think it, what in large part has made it possible for my, to, to tell a different kind of story. I wouldn't have been able to do the research for my book had it not been for the end of the Cold War and the opening of the Soviet archives. Um, for, for my research, I did research in five different Moscow archives, including the archive of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And it's, it's again, it's only in bringing in those kinds of documents that enable us to flesh out the story, I think, that we get a bigger picture. And we get a bigger picture of, of again, the political tensions. We get a bigger picture of the legal tensions as well and the, the differences between the legal, um, the different legal systems and how they were playing out um, in the courtroom and behind the scenes and in the deliberations. We get a bigger picture of um, also the social life and, and what was happening outside of the courtroom and how that affected what was happening inside the courtroom. We get a picture of the role of the media and the connection between what's happening in the media and in the courtroom as well. And I mention these things because I think one of the big revelations for me in terms of looking at the trials is that you can't, anytime you look at a trial, anytime you look at a legal process, especially an international legal process, it's and it's so important to look at beyond 
the transcript, beyond the memoirs, so beyond the story that is immediately legible, and to look for those moments of what's happening outside of the courtroom, what's happening in the back rooms, what do we learn about through secret telegrams, through secret information, what are the stories that are that, that are not told as part of that narrative, and what do we get in terms of a bigger story by bringing all of that in? And I think that we get a great deal. And so I think when we have a watered-down, heroic narrative of a trial, whether it's Nuremberg or anything else, we miss the nuance. And we get this false sense of things either being much more simple than they were or of the divides being more straightforward than they were. From my research, we get a sense, again, it wasn't just the Cold War looms large, but it's not just the Americans and the British versus the Soviets. Sometimes the Soviets and the French are allied against the Americans and the British in certain issues. Sometimes they're all switching sides and the British join in with the Soviets. And and so you get, again, a, a sense of just of the, the nuance of how these decisions are made at these very different and particular junctures. I think, too, like there's a lot about... Um, this about, again, crime, the crimes against humanity charge and a lot of talk today about how the crimes against humanity charge was was um, narrowed at Nuremberg. And I think it's only getting into the archival documents and getting a sense, too, of the behind the scenes discussions, the concerns about state sovereignty, the deliberations that went on in secret as well um, among the judges at Nuremberg, but then the, the back and forth telegrams between Moscow and Nuremberg, that we can get a sense of like what all of the concerns were that came together at particular moments. Initially, the Soviets were uh, opposed to certain elements of the crimes against humanity charge. By the end of the trial, they were the ones advocating for a broader definition of crimes against humanity, which is really surprising. That didn't happen in the end. Crimes against humanity got was very restricted. But again, we end up with a very um, simplistic story. And, um, and looking behind it, I, I think for for not just for historians, but for lawyers, um, it's, it's just a reminder, I think, that um, in Nuremberg was about four countries coming together that had very different experiences of the war, that had very different ideas also about justice. And they worked through those differences to come out with something at the end. And then it's up for us to decide how much of what they ended up with was successful, how much was lost in the need to compromise. And um, and do trials like this, do they work? Um, are, are, they, are they worthwhile? Are the sacrifices that have to be made, are they worth it? I mean, I argue in the case of Nuremberg, I think that it was. We ended up with... Um, a narrative of the second, a narrative of what had happened during the war. We end up with lots of evidence. I think that evidence of the Holocaust, that evidence of of the breach of treaties, all of that is incredibly important for the historical record. Um, I think with Nuremberg, we it does set the stage for deliberations about crimes against peace, crimes against humanity. But I think it's in in going back and looking at the breakdowns in communications and what's happening along the way, um, maybe we can, I think we can learn a lot more from that than we can about um, this kind of straightforward. I mean, we all like the nice straightforward historic story. I mean, those are great movies. Judgment of Nuremberg is a fantastic movie. The Nuremberg movie is a great, I mean, I, I love that stuff, but I don't think that um, if we want to solve international problems, I, I don't think that's the way to go. Well, that segues nicely into um, a new asymmetrical haircuts question that, that uh, Janet followed, where we ask our 
participants what they think of the future of international law. And in this case, then we want to kind of specify it for Nuremberg. How much further can Nuremberg really take us? Or do we need to dismantle this traditional narrative and then now kind of come up with what we want uh, international justice to be? Or is it still okay to use Nuremberg kind of as a very general a lodestone of where to go. Uh, we'll start with Diane and then go to Fran. Well, I certainly think it's advisable to use Nuremberg as a lodestone. It um, truly is remarkable as as an international achievement, not unlike the adoption of the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. These are watershed moments that cannot be ignored. Both of them are fraught with uh, rivalries, with contentions, with with um, difficulties in definitions of crimes, in commitment to funding and full support. And so we have to acknowledge that even as we have these achievements, um, we have to continue to uh, permit positive evolve, evolution and also to be vigilant against backsliding. I think at the moment we're in a place where states are reasserting and becoming quite jealous of sovereignty. I think that that is um, a trend that started no later than uh, the 11th of September, 2001, and has only hastened as states saw themselves having to get more muscular in their responses to perceived threats after that event. Um, and I think that that is an existential challenge, not just for international criminal justice, but international law writ large. What history tells us is it's a do-over. There have been similar existential threats in the past, and the system has adapted. And I suspect that's what will continue to happen in the future. I think when we think about, uh, again, Nuremberg as, as a lodestone, Nuremberg as, as an example, I think we have to be careful because uh, the way that Nuremberg is held up, it's still often empty of reality, right? It's it's still this kind of nice, I think if we're going to use Nuremberg as a touchstone, then we, we really need to openly talk about all of the political complexities and the perils and the possibilities that that kind of collaboration um, brings. Even with the 75th anniversary that just passed, there were, there were so many um, discussions about Nuremberg in which the story of Nuremberg was really simplified, where I kept hearing about, you know, Robert H. Jackson leading the way and this American version of events. And I think going forward today with this American version of events, um, that's a lie, right? Because Nuremberg, I mean, yes, it was in the American zone and yes, Jackson had a powerful role and, and all of that is true, but it was, it was an event that required cooperation and it involved compromise. It involved a lot of negotiation. And, and if that's the story that we have, one of compromise and cooperation and negotiation and having to make trade-offs and 
um, then, then that can help us. But I don't think that the, the heroic narrative, um, again, to come back to that, I don't think that that helps us in, in any way. The way that Nuremberg is used, right, um, is something that is really interesting to me. In the wake of the Second World War, through those years of the Cold War, this idea of crimes against peace, crimes against humanity, that language of Nuremberg was used as a weapon throughout the Cold War with the United States and the Soviet Union and other states using it to call each other to task politically. But did that was it meaningful, though, in making people's lives better across the globe? In some ways, maybe. Maybe it helped feed into civil rights movements and dissident movements and gave people kind of a language to use then to oppose their states. Um, but in terms of international law, I, I'm, I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm not sure. I, I'm, I'm really not sure. So. So in order for Nuremberg to be useful, I mean, for me, I'm a historian, so I, I, I'm really interested in how Nuremberg gets used, but um, but I don't know for international law. The other thing I just want to say, just in terms of how Nuremberg is remembered, in Russia today, Putin holds up Nuremberg and um, the verdict of Nuremberg as a way of talking about how the Soviet Union, or not about Russia, how there cannot be talk about, um, about Katyn how there cannot be talk about Soviet responsibility for the start of the Second World War, how there cannot be talk about any kind of equating of Soviet crimes with German crimes, that the lessons of Nuremberg for the Russians are what came out in the verdict, right? And in the verdict, of course, it was a verdict against the Axis powers. The, the countries of the prosecution weren't taken to task at all at the Nuremberg trials. And so is that also, is that something that we want as a model, a model of a, a kind of victor's justice? So again, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, I think that, yes, I think Nuremberg you know, did more good, right? Um, and that it's something that we should use as an example and talk about, but it's hard to talk about things in all of their complexity all the time. Um, and the way that it gets watered down, I, I, I just don't think that that helps. Just uh, because you mentioned something that I don't know that everybody immediately recognizes, but Katyn is... So Katyn was the, the Soviet execution of about 20,000 Polish officers, Polish prisoners of war. And one of the moments of Nuremberg, one of the reasons why people wanted to forget the Soviet role in the Nuremberg trials even, uh, was that the Soviets tried to use Nuremberg to blame this atrocity on the Nazis. They, they included it in the indictment. And the Americans and the British and the French, they pushed back and tried to get the Soviets to not include it in the indictment. And Roman Rudenko, who was the Soviet prosecutor who was involved in these negotiations, he told Jackson and the others at that point that I have no choice if we don't include it in the indictment. This is in October before the trials are going to start, that I'm going to have to go back to Moscow and talk to Stalin about this in person. And it's going to delay things. And at that point, everyone just said oh, it's, it's, they just pushed it in. But um, but it, it was a couple of days after the indictment was published that Jackson and Sir David Maxwell Fife, the British deputy chief prosecutor, that they get more information suggesting that, in fact, the Soviets were, were guilty of the crime. And so, um, so again, that's part of why, too, the Nuremberg story, it is, when I talk about these compromises and these negotiations, in some ways, I've been talking in these general terms, but, but these are some of the specifics, right? There was a compromise that was made to include Katyn in the indictment in order to make Nuremberg happen. Now, in the end, Katyn sort of disappeared from the judgment because that was one case in which the judges allowed 
Um, the judges allowed the defense to call witnesses to contest these charges. The Soviets were not tried of the crime, right? That just kind of goes because the Soviets are on trial. But enough information is brought up kind of muddying the waters um, that Katyn does not appear in the judgment. And so one could say that that's a victory, right? That the West, that judgment, that um, justice prevailed because it, in the end it, it fell out. But it was something that it, it hung over the entire trial. And when you look at Jackson's diaries, when you look at the some of the behind the scenes correspondence, it's it's weighing heavily on 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 Jackson and on others throughout the course of the trial. So I just wanted to respond to something Fran said earlier about uh, the way that that Putin was using. Nuremberg, and um, I know Stephanie or, or Janet began by reference to the the anti-vaccination crowd mm. invoking Nuremberg. It, it's important to know that there is contention over the legacy, and we see it that way. And it's not just uh, authoritarian Russia that engages in that. There is a rich story to be told about the use of Nuremberg um, by anti-war activists in the Vietnam War um, and the discomfort of the U.S. government with uh, having the Nuremberg precedent thrown at them, not least by Nuremberg prosecutors, including Mary Kaufman, who was a prosecutor at the Farben trial, and indeed in another book written by Telford Taylor called Nuremberg and Vietnam. And so, you know, the the, the challenge the marker that gets laid down at Nuremberg has been something that countries also have had to live up to or try to distinguish away. And I think that in itself is a reason that that the Nuremberg moment is important, because it was a moment where it was said, we are putting these folks on trial, but we recognize that we are creating standards that should apply universally. I, I, one of the things I, I mean, I think that's this is, this is so this is such an interesting part of the discussion for me. Um, and one of the things that I think that in, in terms of, again, Nuremberg itself, um, it's really it, it's restricted to the crimes of the European Axis powers, which is part of why the, the Soviets are OK with things like genocide being included in the indictment as a crime. People often say, well, well what, you know, why were they OK with that, given what we know about the history of the Soviet Union? They were OK with it because it was understood that they were that no other country except for the European Axis powers were going to be on trial. Part of what happens after Nuremberg in deliberations in the United Nations and in other institutions about the Nuremberg principles, I mean, that's where we get this question of, of a discussion about how much should these ideas of crimes against peace, crimes against humanity, how much should they be generalized, right? Because if we think about what happens with crimes against humanity at Nuremberg, we could say that in some ways it was a failure because the, not, the German state was not held accountable for crimes that it committed against its own citizens. Crimes against humanity gets connected with the waging of aggressive war. And so you know, afterwards, there's discussion and debate about whether to extend these Nuremberg principles. But state sovereignty, it keeps coming in, right? And so um, so even to this day, um, you know, are the Nuremberg principles something that states feel that they need to abide by? Do they really affect international law? 
I don't know. I mean, what do you think, Diane? I, this, this, I mean, I'm, I think about this a lot. I mean, do you think that the Nuremberg principle, I'm sorry, I'm not supposed to be the one answer, asking questions here, I realize, but, but just based on what you were saying about, right, about that, that, that the, the history with Vietnam, I mean, I think that's not just for, it's just for today as well. Well, and I think that there probably is regret in some national capitals about some of the um, more sweeping statements that were made because there, there is an expressive power to various understandings about Nuremberg that can, just as they did for Germany, can operate as limits on state sovereignty in other states. And I think that that is an important galvanizing tool. Is it welcome by some of the very countries that put forward that image? Probably not. Well, obviously, you can both talk for hours. Yeah, I have this sense that we could just um, sort of withdraw ourselves, Stephanie, and just let them chat and we could record it all because I think we just have really, really interesting stuff. I really don't want to interrupt you, but um, I feel obliged to do so because we're at the end of our recording time and we just always have our one tiny, tiny question to ask. I don't know whether you'll be able to answer this uh, shortly, which is, is there anything you're reading, listening to or watching that you'd like to suggest to people, um, to our audience? audience. Diane already told us something uh, in the pre-chat that maybe she wants to recommend to others. But let's start with you, Fran. Is there something that's uh, that's on your bookshelf or on your Netflix queue that you want to tell us about? Oh, um, I'm, I'm actually watching nothing related to international law. I've been watching some great, some, some of these amazing, this, um, a really great Russian series um, called Optimisti about um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the 1950s. Um, that I, I, I'm in, in the Soviet Union. So it's in, in Russian, dubbed into English, um, available on Amazon. And it's just great for getting, again, one of the things that I, I find super interesting is kind of the behind the scenes of how institutions work. And this is sort of a behind the scenes of the personnel. It's fictional, but it's, it's really engaging. So it, it's called Optimisty, The Optimists. Great. That sounds uh, really interesting. We're always interested in stuff that isn't international law. What about you, Diane? So um, the book that I just pulled out is uh, emblematic of part of the research I'm doing, trying to figure out the life and times of my subjects. And the book is called The Execution of Willie Francis. And it is about an execution that took place in the United States in the 40s. It was a very gruesome capital punishment case um, because the the person who was convicted was a child at the time, I want to say 16. The trial was a farce and the electric chair did not work the first time. And so the question was, could he be put back into the electric chair? And it went to the U.S. Supreme Court. Thurgood Marshall was one of the lawyers on the case. It's interesting to me because I have identified a link between that case and uh, some of the participants at Nuremberg. And one of the others that we haven't talked about are people of, of minority backgrounds. Uh, the issue of race at Nuremberg was very present in a number of different ways. And the U.S. practices at the very time of Nuremberg of uh, racial discrimination, of segregation, et cetera, 
are indeed part of the story um, and part of the baggage, if you will, that some of indeed the American participants brought with them to Nuremberg. So that's what I've been reading lately. Thank you so much for this very lively and interesting discussion. I think we'll have to come back for Nuremberg part two. Um, because there's lots of things that I also still want to talk about, about anti-vaxxers and the Nuremberg Code and why people usurp the term and how they do it and all these things. But uh, I think we have had more than enough of a very fruitful discussion with you today. So thank you so much for taking the time through all these different time zones. Thank you. Thanks for having us today. This was a lot of fun. Indeed. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Asymmetrical Haircuts is presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode has obviously been recorded at home, but we'd still like to give a shout out to our regular host, Humanity Hub, and we hope to return there soon. Music was by audionautics.com. We're available on all major podcast apps. Give us a rating and spread the word. <laughs>